Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're new with us, we're working our way. We're almost done, but we're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. And it's Paul's probably most intimate epistle, Paul's most intimate letter. He bears his heart with this church that has caused him some heartache. And in this section, he's answering them, and he he says, let me boast a little bit. Paul never boasted about himself. He did boast about the ministry that God had given them. But he is bearing his heart to them because he loved them. And they had received, remember, the Judaizers, the false teachers, the false apostles. Matter of fact, he calls them here the eminent apostles. They called themselves super apostles, and we'll see that. But they were really false teachers. They were saying, yes, you got to believe in Christ, but you also have to keep the law of Moses. So they combined the law with grace, which was another gospel, Paul says. And it's another spirit. And they were not true apostles. Paul's great concern for the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. Let me ask you a question as we begin. How could a parent or pastor best demonstrate their love for their children or for their parishioners? How could they best demonstrate their love for their children or for their parishioners? Well, by doing their best to protect them from harm and to provide generously for their needs. That's what we would say is kind of a a boiled-down synopsis of a great parent or a great pastor. And Paul communicates those two ideas to the church at Corinth who were reticent to have him back, even though he won them to Christ. Now they had begun to follow false teachers. Paul was led by the Spirit of God to use the imagery, and that's what he does here, the imagery of being a very diligent spiritual parent because the Corinthians were his children in the Lord. He uses the imagery, the analogy of being a father who loves his children and he's warning them of danger and yet he's providing for them generously. He wanted the best for them. Every parent wants the best for their children. Every decent parent wants their children to go on and to excel and and maybe accomplish things that they never had the opportunity. I think of my own family. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm, nine children. My dad only went through the eighth grade, and he was so proud of his children that went on to college. And some of us went on to graduate school or seminary and went on for further degrees. He was so proud of that because he didn't have that opportunity. And to see them become engineers or technicians in various areas. And he took great pride in that. And that they succeeded in an area maybe that he didn't have that same opportunity. Every parent wants that. We want to see our children prosper and succeed. Paul wanted that for his children in the Lord. He wanted to see them do their very best. And his emotion is palpable, it's discernible, it's, it, you can feel it in this passage of Scripture as he expresses his love for them. He says, do I love you? God knows I love you, is the way he says it. You can hear him shouting at God knows I do, I love you. So let's break down this passage of Scripture as we always do into kind of a understandable form or a readable outline, and I've divided it into two sections. Paul's jealousy over the church... 
Paul's jealousy over the church, and then Paul's generosity towards the church, verses 1 through 15. First, this first section, verses 1 through 6, Paul's jealousy over the church. He says to them two things. Number one, don't believe another gospel. And then number two, don't be deceived by false teachers. Those are the two ideas that he's getting across in verses 1 through 6 and then also verses 13 through 15. He says, oh, that you would bear with me with a little folly. Paul really felt uncomfortable talking about himself, his ministry, his sacrifices for them. But indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you. That's where I picked up my first thought. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I have betrothed you. We all understand what that is. That's the old Jewish term for being engaged to a man. A woman was betrothed to a man. A man was betrothed to a woman. That meant that they were engaged to be married. They weren't living together yet. But to break that relationship, they would have to go through a divorce. So he says, I've betrothed you to who? To Christ. You're engaged to Christ. Christ is coming back for you in, in the Jewish culture. They would be betrothed. And at an unexpected hour, the husband along with the groomsman would come often at night and pick up his bride and take her to his home. And then the wedding feast would begin. He says, I betroth you to Christ. You're engaged to Christ. I've engaged you to Christ. And he's coming back for you. I'm jealous for you, a godly jealousy, for I betroth you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the servant deceived thee by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity, the straightforwardness that is in Christ. For if he comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit whom you didn't receive when I was there, is what Paul is saying, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with them. And then down verses 13 through 15, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. He says, first of all, verses 1 through 3, don't believe another gospel. You know, true love is never envious, but true love can be jealous. True love is never envious, but true love can be jealous. It has a right to be jealous over those who they love. A husband is jealous over his wife and rightly resents and resists any rivalry that threatens their relationship. A true patriot is jealous for his freedom and he will fight to preserve it. A parent is jealous over their children and will seek to protect them from all that would harm them. So there is a place for jealousy, a godly jealousy, and that's what he says right here, a godly jealousy for them. He didn't want them deceived. He didn't want them going off into error. The picture here, of course, as I've mentioned, is the picture of a local church being the bride of Christ and being betrothed or engaged to Jesus Christ. And that's a biblical picture, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. 
Romans chapter 7, verse 4, talks about the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We're engaged to Christ. He's coming back for us. We'll live with him forever. The bride of Christ is comprised of individuals, and we're warned over and over in Scripture that as individuals, as well as collectively as the body, that we're to keep ourselves pure. Earlier we looked at the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6 goes into that a little bit about keeping ourselves pure and not being hooked in unequal yokes to unbelievers. That's talking about in religious worship. That's talking about certainly in marriage. It even has application for the business world. But we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers because it leads our heart astray. What Paul is saying here is the bride of Christ, us as individuals who who have been saved, must keep ourselves pure, anticipating our husband, our beloved, returning to take us home. So the peril then, the peril is being unfaithful to our fiancé, we could say. The peril for all of us is for us to become unfaithful to our betrothed one, our lover, Jesus Christ. And Paul is emphasizing that. And that's why he describes in verse 3 the serpent's deception. He says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve, he'll deceive you. Just what happened to Eve could possibly happen right here in the church at Corinth, he says. And I don't want to see that happen. Just as Eve was deceived and led into sin, believers are very susceptible to the very same thing. We're susceptible to deception. And self-deception is probably the worst kind of deception. And every good shepherd, and Paul was a good shepherd, every good shepherd loved his sheep and was fearful over the sheep that his people might be deceived and corrupted and led away from the truth. And so Paul is stating it very plainly to them. I don't want to see that happen with you. By the way, notice what he says here. In the last part of verse 3, that you may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That word simplicity is the Greek word that means sincerity or singleness of devotion. He says, I'm afraid that your singleness of devotion to Christ could become polluted and corrupted and lead you astray. Don't allow that to happen, he says. That's why I'm shooing away you could say, these unworthy suitors, these people who would capture your attention and lead your heart astray. The danger false teachers pose is that they shift the focus off of Jesus Christ and onto other things, such as rituals or ceremonies or good works or even emotional experiences or entertainment or social causes, anything that distracts people from the gospel, from Jesus Christ. Those are distractions. He says, I want you to be singly devoted in your simplicity to Jesus Christ. Don't get distracted with other things. And of course, in this case, it was adding works in the Old Testament law, to grace and the gospel. So he says, don't believe another gospel. If anyone comes and preaches another gospel, like he says in Galatians, may they be anathema, may they be cursed of God. Because 
If it's another gospel, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, don't be deceived by false teachers in verses 4 through 6 and then 13 through 15. You know, basically, Satan is an imitator. The Bible calls him a liar and a deceiver, a serpent, the great dragon, but he's an imitator. He basically, one of the best tools in his toolbox is imitating what God does, copying what God does, and then he tries to convince us that his offer is better than God's. He just mixes it up. He adds to the truth. You've heard me say, I grew up in a religion, first 20 years of my life. It talked about Christ, it talked about the Trinity, it talked about heaven and hell, but it added good works to this message that we call the gospel. And I don't want to be too blunt or harsh, but it's kind of like decon rat poison. Decon rat poison is 98% good grain, wheat, barley, oats, etc., but 2% strychnine. And it's the strychnine that kills the rats. We like that. But that's what religion does. It takes a lot of the stuff. Satan takes a lot of the stuff that we find in the Bible that's good stuff, that's true. But it adds to it. It mixes it. It adulterates it. It waters it down. It pollutes it. That's what religion does. And that's exactly what was going on here with these false teachers. He did it with Eve, and he does it with the counterfeit ministers who pretend to serve God, but whether knowingly or unknowingly, they're really truly the servants of Satan. There's a lot of ministers who seem like very good people who are teaching really pretty good stuff, but they're really ministers of Satan because they're not preaching Christ plus nothing. The pure gospel, the grace of God is what saves. Satan has a counterfeit gospel, and Paul spent Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12 talking about that, the counterfeit gospel then involves a different Savior. And as he says here, a different Savior, a different spirit, and it's a different gospel. All false teaching, all false teaching ultimately has its source in Satan because he's the father of lies. He's the author of lies. He's the generator of lies. So all false teaching ultimately finds its fountainhead, its source in Satan. It may not be as perverse and twisted and evil as satanic worship or, you know, other forms of paganism. But if it's, if it's not Christ plus nothing, minus nothing, then its source is really with Satan. These men who are deceiving the Corinthians, look at verse 5. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. It's the word super apostle. He says, I'm not inferior to these guys who come in and call themselves super apostles. I'm not any inferior to them, Paul says. But in fact, they were, verse 13, Paul coins a new term, verse 13, they are pseudo, they are false apostles. That's the word pseudo. They're not super apostles, they're pseudo apostles. They're not great apostles, they're deceiving apostles. They're apostles that are taking the truth and twisting it, Paul says. 
because they preach a counterfeit gospel. What do they say about Paul? They say, for he comes and preaches another gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with him. They were putting up with him instead of kicking them out of the church. For I consider I'm not at all inferior to these, what they call super apostles, even though I am untrained in speech. And we've talked about this. Remember, the Bible says, and it was true, the Greeks loved orators. They were trained in rhetoric. The Jews didn't do that. The rabbis, the Jewish teachers, weren't trained in rhetoric. They weren't trained in persuasive speech. They felt that the word of God was enough. And they didn't have to be bombastic. They didn't have to be great orators. They didn't have to be pulpiteers or something like that. But the Greeks did that. The Greek were orators, and Paul says, okay, I admit, I am not an orator. I'm not trained in rhetoric or oratorical skills, but I nonetheless, I have great knowledge because God had imparted it, and he spent his whole life studying the scriptures. So Paul says, yes, they probably can lob that one at me that I'm not a great preacher, speaker, but I'm not unskilled when it comes to knowledge. He says, he was not concerned about technique, he was concerned about truth. And there's a difference. That doesn't mean technique is bad. But Paul says, I'm not concerned about technique, I'm concerned about truth. He did not want to manipulate the audience because an orator can do that. I don't want to manipulate the audience, I want to proclaim the message of the gospel. That's Paul's point in saying this. However, Paul spoke with tremendous power and impact and got results because it was the Word of God and the Spirit of God that had the impact, not his oratorical ability. It was the Spirit and the Word, and that's what he's emphasizing here. Note verses 13 through 15. We read them a moment ago. We've read them twice, actually. He says here, Satan is most effective when he gets into the church, really. And that's what has happened with these pseudo-apostles. Satan is most effective in the church when he comes not as an open enemy, but as a false friend. Not when he persecutes the church, but when he joins the church. Not when he attacks the pulpit, but when he stands in it, is what Paul is saying. And that's exactly what these false apostles, these Judaizers were doing. They were the ones that were proclaiming a false gospel in Paul's absentia when Paul was gone. Paul says, but I'm coming back. So Paul's jealousy over the church. Don't fall to a false gospel. Don't follow false teachers. And all of us ought to have our antenna up because the Bible tells us that in the last days, many antichrists will come. Yes, there is one dominant, predominant antichrist, and we know he's going to set up his rule in Jerusalem. He's going to reign over the world, and everybody has to take the mark. You can't buy, sell. You can't go into the restaurant. You can't do anything without the mark. But there will be many Christs, in other words, many antichrists. There will be many false teachers, anti-standing in opposition to Christ or in place of Christ is what anti means. We ought to have our antenna up saying, okay, we realize we're living in the last days. There are many false teachers out there, and they're growing exponentially, it seems. Just because you have a crowd doesn't mean that you're a church. Just because you reference the Bible doesn't mean that you're preaching the gospel. 
That's what Paul is warning against. Look at verses 7 through 12. Now the second idea that Paul gives across, Paul's generosity to the church. This is where he felt uncomfortable reciting how he made sacrifices for them. And he had. I see two things here as well. Paul explains how he sustained himself in verses 7 and 8. And then verses 9 through 12, Paul explains why he lived this way. He didn't take money from them, so how did he sustain himself? You know, a loving parent provides for the needs of their family. And that primarily probably falls on the husband, the father. He is to be the protector and the provider of the home. As Scripture delineates, a loving parent provides for the needs of the family. And Paul sacrificed that he might minister to the church at Corinth. He made sacrifices. As you know, every Jewish boy learned to trade. And the trade, because they had to support themselves. Even as rabbis, Paul was a rabbi. He was a leading figure, a leading teacher in Israel, probably to replace Gamaliel, who was the leading rabbi in Israel. Paul was ascending the ladder to become the leading rabbi in Israel. And then he was struck down, and he was won to Christ, and he became, of course, a Christian and left Judaism. Paul learned to trade. Paul was a leather worker. We call it today a tent maker. So when he went into a new town, he would do leather work, building tents, because much of the world in that time uh, often lived in tents. So he was a leather worker, a tent maker, probably made more than just tents, but he calls himself a tent maker, and we often use that term for somebody who's bivocational or they're in a country that doesn't allow missionaries in, and so they go in under a different uh, vocation, an engineer or whatever, a doctor, etc., and they're tent makers. That's where we get that term. Paul was a tent maker. He learned that trade. So he'd go into town, he'd build tents, and then he would meet people, and he would win them to Christ, and he would establish a church. But the pseudo-apostles, the false teachers, were saying, hey, listen, he can't be a real apostle because if he was a real apostle and spent time with Christ, certainly he wouldn't have to work another job. And so they were belittling Paul because he worked another job. And Paul's explaining why he did that. So while Paul was there, he labored as a tent maker. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, he described what he did there at Corinth as a tent maker. And then he also received gifts from other churches where he had established works. And now they were up and running as Christians. He received offerings from them because they wanted to see Paul continue to do in other places what they had done in their hometown. So they would send gifts to Paul. And matter of fact, the Macedonian Christians, Berea and Thessalonica, those churches up to the north, Corinth is down in Acacia in southern Greece. The churches from northern Greece where he had established churches were sending offerings to Paul. So he was tent making and receiving offering. And all of that was to enable him to be able to evangelize Corinth, to be able to win people to Christ there. And it cost the Corinthians nothing to benefit from the apostolic ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so the pseudo apostles, the false teachers, the Judaizers were saying, can't be a real apostle, or he wouldn't have to support himself. So Paul's explaining why I did what I did, how he sustained himself. The Corinthians did not appreciate the sacrifices that Paul was making. He'd been making them his entire ministry, but they didn't appreciate the sacrifices Paul made. The Judaizers 
used his tent-making policy as proof that he wasn't the true apostle. And Paul explained this policy in previous letters. He did it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He explained why I do what I do. So I don't have to be beholden to anybody. He had given up the right of financial support. He lays down the scripture that says, I have the right to support, but I willingly give that up. I don't want that. I'm able to supply my own needs, and God's been able to supply my needs. And he says, I did it so no one would ever be able to accuse me. No one would ever be able to accuse me of using the gospel as a means of making money. Paul says, that's why I do it. I don't want people going around saying he plants churches, he preaches the gospel, also Paul can get rich so Paul can be supported. And by the way, a lot of people do get money and maybe even get rich using religion as their means of getting rich. They're false teachers, false apostles. So interesting, notice verse 8. This verse has always stood out to me. Paul says, I robbed other churches. That's how it's translated. That doesn't mean Paul came to town with six shooters. Hand over your money. I'm doing a good work here, whether you want to support me or not. That's not what he's saying here. He says, I robbed churches. He's using a phrase. He says, I robbed other churches to be able to preach freely to you guys. And the Greek word there is sulao. Interesting word. Matter of fact, it's a very graphic word. He says, I robbed or I sulaoed other churches. It's describing a soldier that would strip the dead soldiers that they had conquered and get the spoils from them. Soldiers made money. Sometimes soldiers got rich. So they would strip, like we would say, the wallet off the guy. And often they carried gold, silver, things that they had accumulated from various battles. And they would strip them, and that's how they gained the spoils. You're familiar with that term, the spoils of war. So how is Paul using that analogy? Paul is saying the believers in Macedonia up north, churches I referenced a moment ago, the believers in Macedonia in northern Greece had been conquered with the gospel that Paul preached. They had been conquered. They had been slain, we could say, by the spirit of truth, by the spirit of God. They had been conquered with the gospel. They had died to self. They were as good as dead as far as this world is concerned because now they're living for God. They had died to self, and they gladly gave of their means. They gave up of their means so that others might surrender to the gospel. That's how he uses this beautiful picture. Remember the Macedonian Christians, Paul says earlier, we looked at it in chapters 8 and 9, even out of their extreme poverty, they gave beyond their ability. Now that's a real formula. They had poverty, they give beyond their ability to meet Paul's needs so he could continue to preach the gospel. That's what he says. They were slain with the gospel. Basically, willingly, I stripped them of their goods so I could keep preaching the gospel to others. And that's you. That's how I sustain myself, Paul says. That's how I've been able to preach the gospel to you at no charge. Because somebody else is paying the bill. Second, Paul explains why he lived this way in verses 9 through 12. A loving father does not lay his burdens on his children. A loving father doesn't come home and say, this is what I'm struggling with at work, man, that I, I work with some idiots. How can you fly like an eagle when you work with turkeys? This is what I'm going through. You know, he doesn't, 
He doesn't lay all of his burdens on his kids that are little. They don't understand. They'll just worry. My dad's not going to make it. He can't provide for us. A loving father does not lay his burdens on his children. Instead, he sacrifices so that the children might have what they need. And many times they don't understand it at all. Do they? Often children never realize the sacrifices their parents make until they're grown up and they look back through much more mature eyes. Boy, that's true in my life. I had no idea the sacrifices my parents made. Growing up on a farm, nine children, the sacrifices my parents made, my dad had one suit of clothes he wore every Sunday to the Catholic Church. My mother didn't have nice dresses. They didn't drive nice cars. My mother ironed all of our shirts. All seven boys wore ironed shirts, ironed shirts to school. I mean, in fact, I had kids comment, boy, your clothes are always so nice. I remember seeing my mother taking that iron and just, she'd crank them out. Man, she could crank them out. She ironed our handkerchiefs. Can you imagine that? Who does that? Who irons handkerchiefs? Cooking. Man, we'd kill a cow, kill a hog. My dad would cut it up. Sometimes we got that privilege. And, and my mother would put it into the boiling um, pressure cookers. And we had stacks and rows of cooked meat that was so tender down in the basement. She did that with vegetables. She did it all. I had no idea my parents made such sacrifice. We just walk out of the freezer and pull something out and throw it in the microwave. But you look back with more mature eyes and you say, what sacrifices parents make for their children? I remember one time, I think my dad was frustrated he said, what do I get out of all of this? And he was, he was just venting a little bit. He didn't do that very often. He said, all I get is a little bit of smoking tobacco. My dad smoked a pipe. He got up at 4.30 in the morning, worked till 8 o'clock at night. For smoking tobacco is what point he made. You know, I think we were talking about how we don't have what some other kids have or whatever. Parents make sacrifices for their family. And the kids many times never, ever, ever realize it until they look back with much more mature eyes. Paul's hoping that's going to come true here with the church at Corinth. Paul emphatically states in verse 11 that he lived sacrificially because he loved the believers at Corinth. And God would confirm that statement. He says, what? Is it because I don't love you? What does he say? Uh, what? God knows I love you. In other words, I testify before God that I made these sacrifices because I love you. That's why I'm jealous. That's why I sacrificed, he says. And he says in verses 9, 10, 12, as well as 1 Corinthians, I'm not going to change my ministry support policy either just because of you. I'm going to keep doing what I do so I can preach the gospel for free of charge as I go to the next city. I'm not changing my policy just because I'm criticized 
and called a non-apostle. He didn't want to lay the burden on the new church. All the while, the false teachers were making money off of them. False teachers came into town after Paul won them to Christ, and they're making money off these Corinthian believers. Paul's hoping with maturity they would develop a desire to support the work of evangelism that Paul was doing just as the Macedonian Christians did and the Corinthian Christians got to that point. They had a harder time maturing, growing up, and understanding that sacrifice is a big part of life and it's a big part of the Christian life. It took them a while to get there because they were so self-centered, narcissistic, but they finally got there. We don't measure things just by what we see. We don't measure things by what we can feel and touch and taste and ride in and walk in and live in. That's what we're learning in Hebrews is that faith sees the invisible. How can you see the invisible? Faith sees the invisible and it lives for the invisible. A heavenly city, he says in chapter 11. Dr. Criswell, I have a book in my library, Criswell's Guidebook for Pastors. It's a tremendous book. Dr. Criswell was probably considered one of the greatest preachers of the generation preceding us. He was pastored the largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention. The largest church in America was pastored by W.A. Criswell. He was a great preacher, a great pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas. And he told the story about a faithful missionary couple who returned to the States on the same ship as Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt came home from a safari in Africa. Many reporters and photographers waited on the dock to greet and meet Roosevelt and get pictures of him with his various animal trophies that he had shot on this extended safari. But nobody was on hand to welcome home the old veteran missionary couple who had spent their entire lives serving in Africa. Nobody. Well, that evening, the couple sat in their hotel room in New York City. The husband became a little dejected. He said, it isn't right. It just isn't right, he said to his wife. Roosevelt comes home from a hunting trip, and the whole country turns out to meet him. We spend our whole lifetime in service to God in Africa, winning people to Jesus and establishing churches, and there's not one single person to greet us. His wife softly, but very wisely answered him. She said, honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. We're not home yet either. There's a reward for those who make sacrifices. There's a reward for those who see the invisible. There's a reward for those that prioritize souls over things. And may we be counted amongst them. Let's pray. Father, we know all that glitters is not gold and all this material doesn't last. We want to live for eternal things. We thank you for the examples in Hebrews chapter 11. We thank you for the example that Paul felt almost sheepish about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, his sacrifices for the truth, for the gospel to establish churches. May we be challenged. 
may we live the same way. We're, we're not the Apostle Paul. We're not living in the first century. But we have some of the same opportunities. Help us to live for you. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Savior, may this be the day they put their faith in Jesus Christ. May they trust him. May they know him aright. May they not follow false teachings, false apostles, deceivers, but may they put their faith in Jesus Christ alone who died on Calvary for their sins. May they be born again. So help us as Christians to reprioritize. Help us, if any that are here that may not know you as Savior, to put their trust in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.